0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's
1: hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favourite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns
2: before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In the latest issue of the magazine, we've included a piece on war trauma, exploring how it's developed and been understood from the French Revolution until today. The piece was written by Emma Butcher of the University of Leicester, and Hannah Partis Jennings from Loughborough University. A little while back, they explored the topic further in a conversation with our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning.
1: So we've been aware of the psychological impact of war on individuals for thousands of years. Emma, perhaps you can tell us um, some of the earliest
3: mentions of war trauma that we can, we've come across. So the earliest mentions usually go back to ancient times and ancient documents. So, um, for example, in the Iliad, so um, there's an instance with Achilles, the soldier, um, suffering nightmares and fears of isolation and survival guilt after his friend dies in battle. So this is a very early example. And this kind of spills over generally into more... um, Kind of ancient stories. So, for example, there's um, a soldier called Epizelus in the Battle of Marathon, which was um, fought in about 490 BC. And um, there's this really interesting account of him just going blind in the middle of battle. So, spontaneous blindness, it's called. So, again, another kind of symptom. And I mean, me and Hannah were having this um, discussion earlier. It's an interesting discussion. But um, another instance is. Um, in ancient Mesopotamia. So this is Iraq about 3,000 years ago. And I think it's really interesting with what we both research on in the fact that obviously the recent wars in Iraq, there's been a lot of focus on PTSD and soldiers returning. But Iraq, 3,000 years ago, you've got the King of Elam saying that his mind had changed after experiencing so many years of constant battle. So you have these kind of small instances that you can pick out from documents, but there's, again, a lack of labelling, a lack of, mm. of medical understanding in trauma. But like I said, this goes all the way back to kind of BC times.
1: Because this is one of the things, like PTSD is quite a recent, as an actual label, it's a very recent thing, but you're saying that there's this, this evidence of the symptoms of this
3: going as far. <laughs> Far back as as then, absolutely. So it's there's an absence of definition, as an absence of labelling. And this is what my research, I'm generally interested in. I mean, these are kind of examples I've said about ancient times going through into the Middle Ages. You've got examples in the Crusades of soldiers um, whose a chronicler describes how their hearts were pierced by swords of sorrows from different sorts of suffering. So you have these kind of little examples in chronicles. But then moving forward into what we see as more modern warfare. So I especially in the Napoleonic Wars. So these began around um, 1800 to 1815. And um, these were wars fought between primarily Britain and France with Napoleon as emperor. And this is the first time in the kind of beginnings of modern warfare that you see a focus on individual suffering and individual soldiers experiencing, the again, these symptoms that have run throughout history, but there's no label. It's only really in recent years that we've given this kind of malady a name effectively. So, was this a bit of a turning point? Would you the Napoleonic Wars were a turning point in the sense that the dawn of Romanticism happened in the 18th century, where for the first time the arts. Culture and individuals were focused on individual suffering, individual feeling. And there was this somewhat turning point between seeing battles and armies as groups of people en masse. And there was a real kind of sense of recognising that in the middle of this cog in the war machine, that each individual cog were experiencing their own experiences, their own feelings and their own relationship with war. So we had lots of artists and writers of the period focusing on the individual soldier. And then during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, you had about 200 soldiers who wrote down their experiences of war. And this became known as a genre called the military memoir. And these were soldiers writing down their feelings. And within this kind of um, genre, this movement of battle writing, you had soldiers grappling with their own experiences of trauma for the first time. But again, these were very much a kind of personal reflection and not seen in any kind of medical way. It was them saying how they suffer melancholia or nostalgia or nightmares or these kind of symptoms, again, of trauma, but not saying, I'm suffering from trauma.
1: So at what point in history did we begin to see a shift from looking at it from that perspective and looking at it from an actual medical perspective?
4: So... In relation, so one of the reasons why I'm interested um, in war trauma is that it acts as a kind of locus for wider perceptions and attitudes um, in society, in politics, in culture. Um, And there are these kind of consistent themes that, that thread through it around our understanding Um, of of combat and its meaning, our understanding of the soldier as an entity, our understanding of different wars that kind of manifest culturally, politically, and socially through this category of war trauma. So you can see these things coming up. And one of the themes is this notion of kind of medicalization, where how the medical profession engages. So yes, in in, uh, 1915, Um, off the back of the uh, large scale of cases of what became known um, as shell shock, about 80,000 cases coming out of the First World War, though it's hard to give an exact figure because of the way that uh, the diagnostics were managed. But Charles uh, Myers comes up with this term shell shock and it is influenced by the symptoms that manifested amongst passengers who had been through a railway crash. Um, so it's tied in medical discourse initially very much to the idea of brain trauma, so kind of a, a somatic uh, cause, you know, a bodily uh, aspect. A physical thing. A physical thing, yes. Um, and But it gradually becomes uh, kind of more broadly understood as a, um, a psychosomatic and a psychological malady. Um, And again, you can see this in the way that the medical discourse shapes uh, our understanding of shell shock around the the, uh, First World War. So you have uh, key figures like William Rivers, uh, Craig Lockhart, the uh, famous trauma hospital or um, recovery hospital in Scotland, Um, And the way he deals with the idea of shell shock um, is very influenced by Freud. So it's very much about locating a point of trauma in the person's story and getting them to kind of re-engage with that story um, to undo the repression of that memory that they have engaged with.
1: So in these hospitals um, that that came about just after the war, um, these were the kinds of therapies that people, that soldiers were experiencing? So this um, is an interesting
4: question. I think medical discourses and medical treatments were, as as, um, I said, kind of informed by wider social dynamics like class and gender. Um, So straight away there's this, initially the idea of hysteria is very much, and Freud's treatment of hysteria is very much understood as a female malady. So when male soldiers, and of course, soldiering is understood then and to some extent, throughout history as this kind of pinnacle of masculinity. So when soldiers start to manifest these symptoms of hysteria and it becomes labelled within the remit of shell shock as a kind of male hysteria, um, that's quite unsettling. So there's an attempt to try to navigate that, to try to produce a wider uh, rationale that can fit with the understanding of the soldier as this kind of um, masculine hero. But it also means that symptoms of shell shock are often discredited at this point. So they're seen um, uh, to be degenerate to be faking it, they're they're malingering, they're trying to get out of um, the war. And you can see this uh, actually operating quite a lot along class lines. So the tendency is to forgive these symptoms much more so in the officer classes um, and to uh, recognise these symptoms of nervous breakdown and to provide Mm -hmm. these treatments like at Craig Lockhart, which uh, operate through talk therapy therapy, and recognition of repressed trauma, whereas... Somebody like Lewis Yelland um, at the National Hospital treated lower class with what tended, so it manifested along the lines of rank, but these tended to map onto class during the First World War. So, treated lower ranking privates with this kind of very physical, arguably quite violent approach. So, with electrocution therapies, been recorded uh, in um, his narratives of um, his treatments, even a burning patients with cigarettes. Um, So the level of sympathy um, and the way that trauma was treated at this time, it definitely entered into the medical mindset, into the medical narrative. So it it became uh, labelled, as Emma was saying, but it was treated and
3: understood differently depending on kind of who you were. And it's interesting that that's when the treatment began and it was so brutal because if you go back through the 19th century, go so back, you also, it's open to this bewildering array of labels by medical professionals, so by surgeons. What sort of labels did so, we have for over the years? In the Napoleonic Wars, it was called cannonball wind, and it was, it was seen that just soldiers would take fright from a passing cannon, so the cannon fire. And then you've also got during the American Civil War, um, it was often called something called soldier's heart, and that was when um, it was seen that knapsacks were too tight, um, knapsacks were too tight on soldiers' chests, so that strings would push onto their chest and cause discomfort. But again, these are all very physical symptoms of a mental malady. And then even when we think about um, so surgeons kind of thought about um, any kind of psychological um, causes for this. Um, So, for example, um, they'd call it nostalgia. And this would be, this comes from the Greek term for nostos, meaning home, and algos, meaning pain or ache. So the desire to return home. So very kind of superficial labelling and, again, very, very physical. And treatment up until the First World War, um, soldiers were locked in lunatic asylums but just left there. You know, there are a lot of the diaries and reports of soldiers, especially in soldiers from the American Civil War, returning home, a lot were farmer, farmers and labourers. So they were, again, trying to reintegrate and, and just return to normal life, to their old kind of civilian way of life. And you have instances of them... Um, becoming increasingly more violent. Um, There was a case of a man called Neil Story who eventually became so violent that his family just isolated him in a log cabin for many years before giving him over to a lunatic asylum and that's just where he died later on. So it's very much soldiers just coming home to not be treated and to die eventually, just kind of left completely unsupported by society.
1: When you mentioned that there was a rise after the Napoleonic Wars in the military memoir, today we we talk about having like a taboo about mental health, but people did talk about their feelings in these memoirs. It was was there a Do you think there was a taboo at these at this time or not?
3: I think that the memoirs were kind of seen as melodrama by a lot okay. of the reading public because beforehand, an everyday civilian would have no understanding of what war was like. So when you present this very new genre of writing, which armchair readers can just read amongst their families, they're able to vicariously experience a war which they would have never often Found out about basically, apart from hearsay. So a lot of these soldiers, when they were coming back and writing these memoirs, they were also doing it for money as well, because as soon as a soldier returned, they were put on half pay, which was not really enough to sustain themselves and their families. So writing these books, they're not just talking about their feelings, but they're trying to exaggerate. They're trying to be dramatic at the same time. So it's difficult sometimes separating the truth of their experiences for kind of the exaggerated, hyperbolic version of that truth. Again, it's it's an exciting thing for maybe the public that don't see the broader issues. Um, one family that I do research in particular um, is the Bronte family. And the Brontes are known for the later writers writing, so Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights. But as children, um, they were reading these military memoirs and creating a fantasy world based on these military memoirs. And within their fantasy world, they were creating soldier characters that were experiencing symptoms of war trauma. So even though there was no kind of medical terminology, you can see that the feelings and experiences of soldiers were rippling through the cultural fabric of the landscape and right into kind of the homes. And I know that they're just one case study, but you have these fantasy soldiers um, in their world experiencing nightmares and hallucinations and seeing blood pouring out from under the bed. And also kind of, it's very Freudian, obviously it's pre-Freudian, but also soldiers returning to the battlefield in their mind and going over and over things that can't be undone. So it's quite interesting seeing, maybe that's just a they were children when they were writing these. So children have these kind of intuitive, very raw responses to things. So it might be just a um, a kind of way, a child's reaction to this. But certainly the public were picking up on this, but a majority were using it for entertainment value.
1: Mm-hmm. So we know that war trauma, as you mentioned, it didn't just affect the soldiers themselves directly, it seeped back into society. What was the psychological impact of war on you know the wider wider families when the soldiers returned, what examples do we have from
3: do you have any case studies like the Bronte family? It's interesting because even though I work on the Brontes and their reactions to war, there's no evidence that they ever spoke to any returning soldiers in um so the Brontes live in Haworth in North Yorkshire. Um and even though they didn't we don't have any records that they spoke to soldiers. Certainly, a lot of the soldiers that returned to the local area were um, instrumental in the Luddite rebellions of um, the early 19th century, where um, local workers protested about the industrialization of machinery, and also later the Chartist movement as well, trying to um, change and enact political reform. So you have a kind of wider, a wider landscape of soldiers becoming very violent and very politically active, which the Brontes would have understood. But again, it's very much just in the kind of of the local landscape. Um, In terms of the impact on families, um, certainly artists of the period were really interested, starting to become very interested in widows and children and painting um, and sketching images of the kind of mournful widow left alone with her child, So there's a plate printed by William Dickinson called Affliction, which shows a dead soldier, a lone dead soldier on the floor with his wife kind of holding his child, just crying over his body. So there was a general understanding of the impact of losing such a huge amount of the male population in Waterloo alone, you know, 15,000 dead in the American Civil War, over 750,000 dead. So... That's obviously going to have an impact on the wives and children that are left behind. But that's just the 19th century. So I think mm-hmm. probably more in the yeah, 20th century. Yeah, I think century. it's
4: interesting. Um, so certainly within the immediate family, and this is something that is reflected in in contemporary times, there are implications um, around violence, domestic violence, um, the instability of a person who is suffering from uh, PTSD relating to war experiences and war trauma, kind of wider issues like depression, suicide, alcoholism, that um, plague veterans suffering from trauma in different ways. Um, it definitely has also entered into the kind of cultural landscape, as Emma has mentioned, this idea of figures, traumatized figures. You know, this comes up in Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Dalloway. Um, the idea of the soldier in the contemporary times. And, I, you know, I've done interviews with soldiers Um, who fought in Afghanistan in the modern day. And they, in some ways, make reference to their own experiences via figures like Owen and and Sassoon. So certainly there's this sense that, and, and, you know, both Owen and Sassoon write about this idea of war trauma as central to their experience um, in different ways. But there's also the issue, which I think is important, of the extent to which there was a disconnect in many instances between soldiers returning back and the wider population who just simply couldn't properly recognize or they felt couldn't properly engage with what they had been through and that this then in turn so this is something that comes up in relation to the Vietnam War and there's this um, winter soldier investigation which is a three-day period in in Detroit in 1971 where just over a hundred veterans get together And it's organized by um, the entity Vietnam Veterans Against the War. So it does have this kind of explicit underlying political rationale. And the idea behind this is that these veterans will have the opportunity to give testimony, to talk about what they had done um, in the context of the Vietnam War um, and how they felt the kind of lasting trauma um, that they were experiencing, bearing in mind that um, the war was ongoing and that within the American media, there was starting to be uh, conversations about the kind of morality of the war and atrocities that were taking place there. But one of the interesting things that you see reflected in this testimony is that when, and this is... um, This is very much demonstrated by the testimony um, of of Robert Lifton, who's a psychiatrist at Yale and a Vietnam veteran. And he comes to this winter soldier investigation and he gives testimony um, and he suggests that one of the reasons why veterans struggle so much to readjust um, after Vietnam is this dissonance between their experiences and their civilian life, their experiences at war and their civilian life. And this often manifests um, in terms of an inability to make sense of their role um, as veterans, because in the broader political landscape in America, there is this increasing distaste for what's going on in, in Vietnam. And this influences the idea of moral injury Moral injury is a kind of whole spectrum of uh, ways of thinking about war trauma, which center on the notion that you have, by participating in war in general or a particular war act, somehow fractured your own morality. So Mm -hmm. somehow come up against your own ideas of right and wrong and that you're struggling to reconcile that. You're struggling to make sense of that. So that's the idea of moral injury kind of sits within wider conceptions of, of war trauma. And it is also linked to this notion of the broader society's inability to understand you, to not get treated as a hero, perhaps, to, to get that's in true. fact and rejected.
1: push that, that image of the soldier as the hero. And that's exactly. been a consistent thing throughout history. And then how you reconcile that with when you come home and the actual reality of being back in your normal environment exactly
3: I think it's also I think it's really interesting thinking about war trauma and how much what actually war trauma means as centuries change as well Mm. because we're kind of calling it this blanket term Mm. war trauma but certainly in terms of the kind of 18th, 19th century and before, how battles were fought was very concentrated. People were in very close proximity to one another. It was kind of muskets and cannon fire. And you can see the person that you're Mm. killing. You're very much confronted by that. And then during the American Civil War, um, advances in riflery and cannon fire meant they were more powerful. So you're seeing your neighbours and your friends kind of blown up in front of you and you're Kind of physically covered in them, and that's incredibly traumatic. And then warfare changes, doesn't it? Because you mm. get to the it's first world war. pilots even today,
1: um, mm. and they still experience. I think they still experience P- things like PTSD, even though they're not as immediately Absolutely.
4: there on the ground. Yeah. So as Emma says, it kind of brings to the fore this um, relationship between distance and proximity. When it comes, the role of combat increasingly, uh, medical practitioners and and scholars of war are aware that actually combat is not necessary for people to experience war trauma. They don't have to have faced combat. Whereas. Again, as Emma is saying, and this is evident in Sassoon and Owen's poetry as well, there is this real viscerality to the experience of soldiering froth corrupted lungs, as articulated by Wilfred Owen, that there is this um, immediacy, even with the technological advancements of the First World War, there is this immediacy to killing. This comes out um, also in the in the um, Winter Soldier investigation in relation to Vietnam. But by the time you get to the contemporary context, this notion of um, remove, you know, remoteness uh, that's I suppose, epitomized by the drone pilot um, and the controversy surrounding uh, whether or not drone pilots actually should be understood as soldiers in the traditional sense, participating in combat in the traditional sense. And yet what we know, what we see is that they are experiencing war trauma um, and they are definitely experiencing a different kind of intimacy in relation to the acts that they participate in, the acts of uh, violence and the moral uh, choices that get made around this. And it's really, really well represented in George Brandt's play, Grounded, which is um, a one-woman play. Anne Hathaway actually um, performed the central character at one point. And he, uh, through the way that the play is written, kind of articulates this collapse between the home front and the battlefront that takes place um, for the central character, who is a drone pilot. So even if she is not, and in the end, she experiences war trauma and inability to distinguish between um, the battle spaces that she's watching, 18 inches away from her face on a screen, and her own life. Um, in the US. Those two things collapse together. Um, So almost in a way, the kind of opposite to what Emma is saying, where there's this very visceral and intimate relationship to killing uh, throughout history, kind of um, point blank range, as it were. And then in the context of the contemporary era, this um, almost opposite relationship to the acts of violence that are engaged with in war but still manifesting Mm. um as a particular kind of war trauma and this this speaks to emma's point about the diversity um you know the need to kind of particularize exactly
3: and also not just as well you've got the kind of soldiers in the midst of it you've got the repercussions on the family and the home and mm. the fear of of war entering into the domestic front so mm. um there's the caricature that james gilray um, drew of the soldier returning home who's physically mutilated by war and the family terrified of this kind of new soldier and this new um, head of the family that's returned to them and this kind of fear um, of, of a generational impact mm-hmm. and in, in American Civil War as well you had cases of trauma kind of reverberating through generations of family you know, move on to have a, a legacy exactly on
1: down the generations
3: I mean I think that in the Second World War as well there's certainly been that kind of generational legacy and the People suffering, and I've read uh, reports and accounts of children suffering trauma from the incessant kind of bombing, especially of areas like Hull, who would just bomb so, Hull and London sort of bombed incessantly, and the fear of. War becoming then part of the home as well, which I guess links into um, what Hannah's saying about drone pilots as well, that are uh, they bridge that soldier-civilian divide where they're soldiers during the day, then they come home at night to their families and have mm. dinner. And that's the first time, isn't it, that really you're, you're able to do that. And every day you're kind of switching between roles. It's absolutely this kind of famous line that somebody can
4: be engaged in war for 12 hours, leave the theatre and be asked to pick up milk on the way home. So this total collapse between those spaces, as Emma's saying.
3: Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think that trauma, as well as it affecting different people in different ways, it's evolved and changed as the centuries have passed. So I'm reluctant to go back and say, you know, this particular soldier was experiencing this. It's just that the symptoms match up our modern day
2: descriptions. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: When we think of of war trauma, that that phrase, um, it would be a myth to just immediately think war trauma, it means PTSD, it means someone who's been out there and, you know, they've seen something absolutely horrific and come home. It's not just that, it's a much broader, wider thing affecting society. I was going to say, it took such a long time for war trauma to be established as a medical condition, and we've talked about this a bit already. Um, What were some of the key turning points um, in history for how we approach and manage trauma what do you think was the most significant? So I think the first world war for me
4: um, was probably the most significant moment in terms of how and the extent not just because the First World War I think functions very specifically and we're looking here and this is an important caveat at the Anglo-American context and in this case very much the British context with the First World War so this this doesn't resonate globally and individual nations have their own legacies and stories when it comes to their histories of war and war trauma but in terms of um the British context. I think the, sh- the sheer scale of the individuals who were suffering, um, the, the the techniques that had to be developed to manage this. You know, even to the point of bringing uh, forward these um, these war trauma managing hubs to the front because there was this fear that if you bring people back, um, they will get a taste of home and they won't want to return to warfare. And and bearing in mind, of course, that this is ultimately always the goal in in relation to First World War treatment is, if possible, to return somebody to the front. Um, And this, I think, is key. You know, it's about being able to um, correct what has in in this frame of reference kind of gone wrong so that soldiers can um, return to the front. So there's not so much. It's very interesting looking at uh, Siegfried Sassoon's story, you know, this famous war poet, and he... Um, was diagnosed with shell shock because he objected morally to what was going on um, in the First World War. So even the kind of idea that that moral objection is kind of pathologized. I think that that um, was at the heart of some of the ways uh, that it was treated. But as I said, even though, so there was certainly things that would be extraordinary to us in terms of how mental health was approached Mm. in the First World War. I think it was a turning point in, in terms of it's, it very much entered into the kind of social and political frame of reference and had to be dealt with so you get um, psychologists and psychiatrists asked to be involved in kind of pre-deployment uh, training by the second world war so there's this understanding that resilience is a facet of soldiering that it is a traumatic experience and I I think that this does stem and you can see this to today um as I said with the drone pilots, there was a, a lack of expectation that drone piloting as a form of soldiering would be productive of PTSD, of war trauma in the same way. But there is a much um, faster learning process in the contemporary context, this kind of rapid recognition that these are the symptoms. They may, they may not be attributed to specific things, um, so there's a general reticence, I think, to allocate specific causes. Because, as we said, of the kind of diversity of of reasonings behind why somebody might experience uh, war trauma and the importance in the contemporary time, attention has been drawn to the importance of not centering combat, Mm. Um, and this impacts female
1: soldiers as well. As we know,
4: female soldiers.
1: I was going to ask actually, is there a gender difference um, in how war trauma is, how we look at war trauma? Yeah,
4: I know, absolutely. I think. This centering of of combat experience has had implications for female soldiers um, whose condition... Uh, As might not be recognized as PTSD, as war trauma in the same way if they didn't serve in a combat role. And we know in Britain and America, this has only become legally possible, legally and technically possible um, in the last few years. So the female engagement teams um, in Afghanistan, for example, um, weren't technically frontline soldiers, even though they were exposed. So just to clarify, the female engagement teams are all-female units that operated in in Afghanistan in the context of the recent war um, that were uh, deployed alongside more traditional units, and they had a specifically counterinsurgency mandate. So they were specifically tasked with um, engaging with the Afghan population. But because of the nature of the Afghan war, because of the nature of the war in Afghanistan, um, and counterinsurgency warfare, these individuals were exposed to combat. Um, so the distinction was more of a technical one. They were under under fire, they were in, in danger, there were um, improvised explosive devices in the terrains where they worked. So um, the gendered dynamics can manifest in terms of how people are understood as soldiers And if combat is central to that, then there there might be this kind of, oh, well, if you're not a combat soldier, then how how can you experience PTSD in the same way? And again, I think there's been some learning around that, similarly with the prevalence of um, sexual violence and harassment in the context of the military and how that can compound Uh, trauma and and again this is you know potentially providing a different lens back to what Emma was saying this catch-all phrase we still Mm -hmm. um, need to disaggregate a little bit on on in terms of kind of the the logics um, and the particularities of that for um, (coughs) individuals um, dependent on their context (coughs) dependent on things like gender and sexuality um, there's been high instances of uh, psychological uh, symptoms in transgender soldiers who um, suffer additional layers of discrimination and potentially violence within the military context. So all of that, um, I think, plays a role, as as Emma was saying. It's
3: still progress as well, because generally mental illness, it's, it's recognition, it's treatment. <clears throat> By society and by medical practitioners, is still ongoing, isn't it? There's still, like you said, war trauma is multifaceted, but also um, it, it's combined, isn't it? It's not just how we talk about mental illness. It's how we talk about LGBTQ plus rights. It's how we, as a society, begin to accept that it's not just a basic formula for treatment. Mm. It's there's, as history has taught us as well, trauma is um, experienced in a multitude of ways. It's difficult going back into history and labelling soldiers and saying, oh, well, they experienced PTSD. Oh, retrospectively diagnosed. Because diagnosing. this is not, yeah. I think that trauma, as well as it um, affecting different people in different ways, it's evolved and changed as the centuries have passed. So I'm reluctant to go back and say, you know, this particular soldier was experiencing this. It's just that the symptoms kind of match Match up our modern day um, descriptions, but it doesn't mean that even those symptoms are the same symptoms. But that's um, again relative with weapon to weaponry to um, progress in rights to all of these different societal factors and political factors that also filter into these kind of um, mental states.
1: Mm-hmm. So I suppose just to sort of wrap up, um, where do you think we are today and where do you think we need to be in our attitude to war trauma? So
4: I think one caveat. Academics love caveats. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I sometimes make so many caveats that I can't remember what my original point was. But one caveat that I think is important. um, So one of the elements of my research is also looking at um, one of the ways I've encountered war trauma is amongst um, war affected civilian populations in Sri Lanka, for example. Um, So I think one caveat, one important facet of consideration is that Yes, it is crucial to consider the experiences of veterans and soldiers, but it's also very vital. And this was something that came up in my interviews with soldiers as well, who recognized the symptoms um, of war trauma in civilian populations living in Afghanistan. So this idea of paying attention to war trauma as something that is experienced by multiple populations. I think that's crucial. And some of the insights that we've generated through um, the various experiences of soldiers, for example, in Britain and America, um, next steps, I think, thinking about how that impacts civilians who might not have access to the diagnostic uh, tools that um, soldiers, for example, do. But also I think um, considering modes of expression, and this is something that comes out in what Emma and I have been so interested in, is the kind of um, consistent engagement um, via cultural outlets with trauma, even when it didn't have a name, mm. even when it in some ways wasn't possible to express in other domains of life. Poetry, art uh, gave a, a potential language um, and a voice to what people um, had been through, what people had experienced. So I think there's something there in terms of going forward and something that is capitalized on um in some instances, you know, looking at the potential of other spheres, cultural spheres, for instance, to provide a different vision of war that might offer an opportunity for those who've encountered war trauma to um, express themselves Mm. through a different means and that comes up I think in our work.
3: And I think as well I think that the global reach is really important as well in terms of going back to the past. I mean Hannah's rightfully said that these are very much British and American perspectives of the past as well and that's usually because that's the records that are available You know, that's that these things that survive. So I think for me, it is trying to find the past and see how they experienced war from the other side of things. I've got a very kind of British Empire perspective here, which I would like to dismantle and Mm. like to see the other side's. Of, of war and of civilian impact and also thinking about things written in concentration camps. Um, you know, one thing that I'm really interested in at the moment is the Boer War, um, the Second Boer War in the um, late 19th century. And, you know, multiple Boers were put in concentration camps and their records survive. But they are all in Afrikaans and Dutch, so it's very difficult to access those without language as well, which sadly I don't have, so I admit. So it would be trying to get more people interested in kind of the multifaceted voices from the past, which academics need to really bring to light and bring to the fore.
0: That was Emma Butcher and Hannah Partis Jennings. You can read that article in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is available now. The issue also has pieces on a range of other historical topics, including the princes in the tower, the real Peaky Blinders, and the outbreak of the Second World War. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday, when I'll be speaking to Brendan Sims about Hitler's world